Hail och Sal. Have you ever wondered why I'm not rich and up to my ass in money? I have also asked that question once or twice. But inshallah, all of that is about to change. And whether you like it or not, you're coming in for the ride. And not just coming in for the ride. It is in fact you, my dear supporters, who'll be pulling the wagon as I bask like a plump Scandinavian Bacchus with grapevines in my hair. I've decided that meta-commentary on ancient Scandinavia and its eerie afterlife just ain't hitting the spot no more. So what am I going to do instead, you may ask? Well, isn't it obvious? Snake oil! That's where the real money is at. I've been browsing the web lately and looked at some of the ridiculous titles passing as non-fiction these days, and I mean, everybody else seems to be doing it right now, so why not me? All I have to do is convince people that I have some secret, some power, hitherto inaccessible to the unenlightened, uninitiated, and unwashed. That means you, dear listener. But it doesn't have to be like this. You can become like me. You see, I have the gift and you can't prove I don't, because I learned everything about paganism and magic, and then some, from the last living practitioner, who just barely managed to divulge his secrets to me. To me, dear listener, just before he died. Isn't that convenient? Who taught me the ancient Viking practice of primal screaming and jerking off on runes. The proper way of squalling, just like the berserkers would have done, all the way back to the Neolithic. The sexy secrets of pagan polyamory, runic rope bondage, or maybe like how to move money from your pocket into mine the pagan way. And for the appropriate amount, of course, I'll teach you how to ritually destroy gold rings and chuck bent swords into the swamp. How about the age-old ritual of burying pots of silver in fields? The silver you'll have to bring yourself, but the blindfolds are complimentary. Nobody will ever know their exact location. Except for me, of course. So there's the product, but some kind of marketing strategy is needed. Something that provides the illusion of authenticity. Maybe I'll paint some runes on my face. That'll get the, the point across. Maybe I'll get a drum, you know, bang on it for the grams. It's easier than playing an instrument that the Vikings actually used. Once that is in place, I'll be irresistible. But it does sound like an awful lot of work. Updating my Instagram every day and such. Holding courses, talking out of my ass, pretending like I know something I don't. Ugh. Instead, maybe it would just be easier if I continue as I've always done with the same old tired formula. I mean, that's Daoism, is it not? Wu Wei, the path of least resistance. I think that's more my style. And maybe have somebody who actually knows something about something come on every once in a while. Like today. Today's guest will be Eldar Heda, a scholar in the field of Old Norse philology who also happens to be my friend. Kind of more than a friend, actually. Um, Eldar was my professor for many years at the University of Bergen, and in, in many ways I consider him to be one of my mentors. He he encouraged me to think broadly and outside of the box. Uh, I remember one time he sat me on the lap and, well, maybe not sat me, and I remember one time he told me, Eirik, being a scholar is kind of like being an artist. It's a thankless task, difficult to quantify, difficult to price, 
difficult to get paid. Plus, we can't really sell our products, he said. I think initially, I interpreted this in a way that justified my then naive ideas about an antiquarian career. So, when I graduated, I was working weird museum hours and allowing my enthusiasm to be exploited. Uh, living on a starvation, you know, barely making ends meet. Uh, that seems to be the lot for many people who are passionate about the past until we just tire and crack and just go do something else. But when that once shimmering facade of the academic institutions began to crack and fade, I was still inspired not only by Eldar's academic endurance, but also his ability to see things from a different point of view. At some point I thought, hey, why not just be an artist at that point? I mean, if I was gonna work for a starvation wage and burn myself out as a martyr for cultural heritage, at least I could play and have fun and be creative as I went along, right? You know, if I wasn't going to pursue an academic career, why did I have to abide by academic rules, you know? Because I wasn't a citizen of the academic city-state, I was a nomad, a Scythian, a barbarian out on the steppes. I was no more a member of the academy than Arminius was Roman, right? Who was I trying to impress? So the idea would ultimately snowball into what you're listening to right now. This man-microphone assemblage of the Scandi Futurist war machine that is Brute Norse. Always looming beyond the gates, beyond the keepers, carving my runes on the toppled aqueducts of the smooth brain discourse. Though I wouldn't dream of holding Eldar accountable for my misdeeds, it's probably fair to say that I would never have created Brute Norse if I hadn't met brilliant, creative, even eccentric scholars such as himself at the right age. Eldar is a man of many proverbial hats. He's a maritime conservationist, a linguist, a cultural historian, a pioneering and defining scholar of retrospective methods where ancient cultures are studied on the basis of the things that they passed down to their descendants, entertaining the notion, albeit critically, that early modern folklore can help us better understand some of the attitudes and beliefs of the people that came before them, for example in the Middle Ages, or even in pre-Christian times. At some point he was the Norwegian champion of a sport called ski tree jumping, a sport that literally consists of using a ski jump to launch yourself straight into a tree like a Norwegian kamikaze. But the reason I wanted him on this podcast today is because Eldar is an expert on Norse magic, specifically Gandr and Seyðr. Seyðr, contrary to popular belief, is not a general term meaning magic in Old Norse, so don't let any fools with a letter course at your new age bookshop tell you otherwise. Seyðr seems to have been something fairly specific within Old Norse culture, but what it was is not easily unraveled. What seems apparent is that Seyðr was an ecstatic technique that had something to do with spinning. It also had something to do with uh, the greater complex of how the human spirit was conceptualized up until the Enlightenment in Scandinavia, and sometimes later. It had a strong component of sexual taboo. But on a more concrete note, it had something to do with retrieving information, or resources from afar, or affecting things that were distant, using some kind of envoy or remote-controlled magical object, much like drones are used in the modern world to gather intelligence or to attack, deliver, or retrieve things today. 
I don't expect that anybody would understand any of this just looking at the title of the show, but to me it seemed like a no-brainer. And I hope it will be clearer to you once this episode is over. As always, my name is Erik Stolsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. This is The Viking Drone Wars with Eldar Heide. like to introduce yourself well thank you uh, Eric um, it was a real pleasure to have you as students um, back then and um, I think you're doing a great job with your with your podcast so um, well introduce myself and my I don't know um, well yeah I do, do all Norse studies uh, various aspects of all Norse studies um, some linguistic history, um, historical linguistics, um, place names, uh, terminology related to Viking ships, um, first and foremost, maybe. Um, and um, yeah, of course, Old Norse uh, mythology and religion. And uh, I try in, in, in that work to um, make use of uh, post medieval folklore as well which uh, hasn't been that uh, common uh, since the middle of the 19th uh, 20th century so but, but which is now gradually uh, getting back in in fashion I, I think I think a point to maybe get across here is the fact that it is uh, quite unusual for a scholar uh, of your sort to uh, indulge in such a wide array of different sources linguistics archaeology late folklore uh, comparative method well um yeah you're right it, it's not uh, very common um and and of course it's demanding uh, but i think it's the best uh, option we have because in my view the um, fundamental challenge that we're facing when studying um well, early northern history uh, or cultural history is that um, what well, we, we're facing a chronic lack of information. We're chronically short of information. So, so we should uh, attempt to, to collect as many pieces to the jigsaw puzzle as, as possible, um, be it etymological pieces or... or uh, archaeological artifacts or, or place names uh, reflecting um, beliefs back then or, or even post-medieval uh, folklore, which in some cases have preserved, um, it seems to me at least, preserved uh, important uh, 
parts of of the uh, pre-Christian beliefs that uh, were not reflected in in the written uh, high medieval sources. So the material wealth uh, of those sources is just so huge that we could probably speak oh. about this for several episodes. But um, uh, do you have any concrete examples that you would like to talk about? Well, at the moment, I'm I'm working on um, uh, the late. Uh, Odin material. There's a, there's a huge um, late tradition about Odin uh, from central Sweden through Denmark all the way through uh, through Germany down to uh, um, Austria, Switzerland, um, and it's uh, it, well in the early 20th century and the 19th century uh, that tradition was. Uh, very important to uh, the study of old Norse and old Germanic religion, but since them, well, since around World War II, uh, hardly anybody has studied it. So uh, I think it's it's time to um, take another look at at that material and the arguments that were used to uh, to reject it. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it seems like a lot of previously discarded research of that sort is having a sort of renaissance where people are looking at it afresh, perhaps with a little bit more nuance than before. It definitely seems like some babies were thrown out with that bathwater. Um, yeah, right. I agree with you. Yeah, so the reason I wanted you here is because you wrote an amazingly fascinating PhD thesis on Gandr and Seder. Seder, of course, being a specific kind of magical technique within the Norse uh, sorcery tradition, we might say. Uh, and contrary to what seems to be popular belief, uh, Seder was not Norse magic widely, uh, which we have many other terms for, but again, a specific sort of magic tied to a very particular kind of uh, complex. Uh, I think this is sort of an important topic, um, you know, because there are people online selling Seder courses, uh, claiming to actually teach Seder, and um, I think that the impression of Seder that is being sold in new religious movements, uh, new age, and, well, some neo-pagan communities can often be quite different from what the sources actually suggest. Yeah. Well, um, we have to admit, I think, that we don't know much uh, about say that what the uh, it's men say that is is mentioned many times many many times in the old Norse sources but and there's uh, nowhere um, any information about how it was done it's just at best it's a it's descriptions of uh, of uh, the requisites and and the situation and uh, situation and, and the results. So what what it led to, what it was used for, but how it was done uh, is nowhere told. Um, I believe um, that was uh, because there was some sort of taboo connected to it. So the the uh, crucial information, what we would most want to know, uh, seems to have been omitted in in, in the sources, but. Um, what is clear, though, is that it's um, it was an ecstatic uh, kind of of sorcery or ritual practice, so um, overlapping uh, very much with uh, with um, probably the most central part of Sami religion. Uh, so um, 
so during Seder, the, the Seder practitioner would uh, go into a state um, of ecstasy um, and the, the body would be left immobile and um, the source of the ritual specialist would go somewhere else uh, while the, the, the body was, was left behind, would go well to other places to, uh, to spy, get information like like um, drones of modern times um, or or fight with other um, um, other souls sent forth uh, they would be fighting in in um, shapes uh, the shapes of, of animals for example reindeer bulls um, and uh, and the result the, in, in most cases, uh, the result of Seder is, is to uh, attract resources or people. So, so to where you are, you could use Seder to, um, to, uh, to attract people or resources. And, and also um, divination is uh, quite common uh, purpose. Yeah, I think I'll stop there for now. Well, in Inglinga Saga, of course, there is Snorri, uh, who refers to Odin's uh, shape-shifting abilities as a technique where his actual body is laying down as if it were dead or sleeping, while his spirit, I guess it is implied, wanders outside of his body in the shape of a fish or a snake or whatnot, and is able to sort of zap around almost like teleportation. Of course, the Odin that Snorri is referring to here is um, an euhemerized version of him, where Snorri is basically saying that it's not really Odin, the god, but Odin, the man that we're talking about, who was later mistaken for a god. Um, but when he's describing him in this way, it seems likely that uh, he is referencing a, a sort of sorcery that uh, Snorri had heard about in his own day, and which we know uh, is actually authentic to at least the Sami context, uh, both before Snorri's time and um, many centuries later. But Eldar, uh, when you're saying that Seder is basically about attraction of resources and things, um, what do you actually mean by this? Well, uh, the clearest example is, uh, is that there was this Seder woman who, uh, who um, during a famine, uh, attracted fish. So, so the, the, the sound or, or the fjord next to where she lived was suddenly filled by fish and the famine was over. Okay, so what about divination? Um, I think perhaps that divination, at least in the contemporary Western mindset, is usually conceptualized as a sort of vision of things that haven't been revealed yet, or maybe interpretation of omens and signs and such. Uh, I just realized that it might not be intuitive to the audience how uh, divination plays in with this interpretation of Seder. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's... Uh... Part, it seems partly that, well, in, in a few sources, it, it's quite clear that the, um, the Seder uh, woman, it's usually a woman, um, attracts spirits or, or um, summons spirits uh, that gives her information uh, about the future. So, so that's an attraction element. But then it's, um, uh, well, the theory that I... Um, launched in 2006 about sailor and, and spinning I, I argue that there's quite a bit of information uh, that seems 
to point in the direction of, of say that um, well it seems that the the, uh, the literal meaning of the word was was a thread or, or maybe a rope so um, yeah and, and it's quite clear that etymologically that's the meaning of the word it's uh, it's cognate with um, for example modern German uh, Zeite which means a string on a string instrument and there's uh, cognates also in Old English uh, similar meanings and um, Lithuanian, which is a very um, conservative uh, Indo-European language. Um, and um, yeah, if so, I argue that Seder um, essentially was about spinning um, and you could spin, it seems, uh, a, a wind that a whirlwind or some other um, well, odd wind that could attract uh, what you wanted to uh, to have, um, and then about uh, divination, um, it's um, well the Nordnir, old Nordnir, um, seems to seem to have made a thread for each human being uh, when when uh, they were born. So um, then, if this is a theory, but if Sailor was about spinning, um, the Sailor practitioner could make a thread that represented the thread of life of, of the, the person to be, uh, um, well, that you were interested in, and um, that you could examine that thread that, that represented the life of the person. So that's at least a possible way of viewing it. I think that is extremely fascinating. And to return to one of the metaphors that you use here, I mean, the, the mental image of the spirit envoy or Gandr as a drone is definitely something that we're going to have to use for this episode. Right. <laughs> very brutal, <laughs> very scanty futuristic. So we've covered some of the essentials with a thread and yarn and spinning seder. But what exactly is a Gandr or Gandr? Yeah, that was the um, the main topic of my my dissertation, and um, it's um, I tried to to um, cover all the or study all the meanings of gand gandr um, and the derivation in Old Norse gondol um, of, of well cover examine all those meanings, um, and it gives a very complex picture. But uh, it seems that the, at least in the, the high Middle Ages, the essential meaning of Gandr in Old Norse was this um, um, spiritual emissary that you could send forth um, during Seder. It's, uh, it's not the only word used um, for uh, such an emissary, but, but it's quite clear that it's it's one word uh, used for it. So um, yeah, to to find, for example, one example in Eirik Sagarada, there's a, there's an outlaw hiding somewhere in Greenland, and then there's this sailor woman who um, you send sends forth a gander and and finds out uh, where he's hiding. So and the the most um, 
the most important source that we have is uh, it's a late 12th, 12th century source um, in Latin, Historia Norvegia, which tells about, among other things, um, uh, shamanistic seance among the Sami with uh, Norwegian guests present. And in that case, it's the Latinized form Gandus, uh, which is used about the the um, the soul of the Sami Noidi uh, in in a trance, uh, sent forth in in the shape of um, a whale, and it meets uh, the Gandra of, or Gandus of um, another Noidi um, in the shape of stakes. So it is, the stomach of the whale is split open by by the stake uh, on the bottom of, of the sea, and the Noidi at home. Uh, well, dies because the, the stomach is, is ripped open. So it's this fight on a distance um, in the shape of, yeah, not necessarily animals, but in the shape of whatever is useful in the this, in this situation. Of course, we cannot talk about gander without mentioning the different but related concept of gun as a sort of curse which persists in Norway today. And you, Eldar, used to live in an area commonly associated with that tradition, didn't you? Uh, well, it's, um, yeah, in Northern Norway and also in Tundler, but especially in Northern Norway, I think there's still this idea that, that the Sami, um, um, that, well, you should be aware of the Sami because they know more than other people. So, uh, and there's, um, in the local newspapers in Finnmark, uh, few years ago there was a story for example about um, a man whose uh, firewood firewood had, had been stolen and he, he told the journalist well the thieves better return this firewood because I know people who know certain things and, and then the journalist asks okay are you thinking about gun well I think I've said enough <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, um, the, this uh, newspaper could inform the readers that, okay, now the firewood is back. So, uh, and there's many similar stories. So, and it's not necessarily the case that people really believe that uh, the Sami have such uh, abilities, but, well, you never know. That's, uh, if, you're not, if you're not sure, then, then that's enough to, to yeah, so, so um, yeah, it, it can work. Um, but then um, that's, a, that's um, those ideas are quite different from, from the, the tradition as late as the mid 20th century, because uh, back then in the, um, in the recorded folklore, it's more talking about a gun, which is then a magical projectile. It's uh, like a gigantic fly um, smashing into you and making um, a wound that will never heal. Um, things like that. Um, so it's, it's this, this emissary that uh, connects to to the medieval beliefs about this the spirit that you send forth um, but today's tradition is is this um, 
uh, it's more talking about a verb uh, to gunne uh, or gunning, um, as a verbal noun, uh, which means completely. Um, uh, well, it's completely abstract. There's, there's no physical. It's just this uh, completely abstract uh, evil influence on uh, on the victim, not the, the physical uh, um, projectile emissary anymore. So it's um, yeah. Whereas in in Old Norse, gandr. Um, did not refer to a form of magic. It was um, an object or, or well, a uh, spirit uh, that could be sent forth during a certain kind of magic or ritual practice, but uh, it did not itself mean magic. So there's clearly a, a development. And it, the same may have uh, well, it probably was some probably happened with with the word seder, because it seems etymologically to originally have meant uh, a thread, but in our sources, uh, old Norse sources, it, it refers to uh, a form of of magic or ritual practice. So it's no longer the physical uh, thing. I actually have a personal anecdote relating to this, um, in that. I had this neighbor when I was in my teens living in Haugesund, uh, this middle-aged guy from the north who claimed that he knew how to gun people. And I learned this from my dad, who was kind of amused and intrigued by this idea. And of course, as it always is with curses and black magic, I suppose, a lot of its force lies in the power of suggestion, right? So just as you say, I don't think this guy ever had to say that he could or would curse people outright, but he would kind of phrase it like, yeah, if I want things to go badly for someone, I can think of them and make it happen. Or he would say something like, if somebody double crosses me or does me wrong, then, you know, things will not go their way. And of course, if you're not living in a universe where you think that that is possible, this means nothing to you. And you do have these mouth breathers who take offense to the very notion that somebody would believe such a preposterous thing. But if you are one of those people who believe yourself to be affected by this kind of negative influence, it really can have that sort of effect. It can make you ill or drive you insane. That's kind of a common anthropological argument, right? Uh, is magic real or not? That if you look at it from the emic perspective, that is from within the group, then yeah, magic is real by consensus, basically. I mean, you can call that superstition and it wouldn't be unwarranted, but it does actually seem to happen in accordance with its own uh, kind of inner pantomime of logic. And one could say that it's the sugar pill, right? It's placebo. But you know, the placebo effect is not the absence of symptoms. It's symptoms without a rational cause, but a cause demonstrably nevertheless. It's like telling an amputee that they can't possibly have phantom pain in their left leg because the leg is gone, you know? Demanding rationality out of the human experience uh, is wishful thinking. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. And I'm not saying that people should be at the whim of their superstitions or whatever, but, uh, you know, uh, people who categorically say that this is simply not true, simply not possible and whatnot, they're living in a world that is uh, totally anachronistic compared to uh, the experience that most people have had throughout human history. 
So I'm going to try to take this tangent in a different direction, but still on the theme of uh, unseen forces and suggestion. Specifically the case of idolatry, or uh, the practice of keeping house gods in certain parts of rural Norway. You used to have this thing on certain farms in Setesdalen, where specific farms were said to have owned um, these wooden statues, which were named Faxe, that were venerated on certain holidays and supposedly gave prosperity to the farm. So in these cases, the object in question, the idol, has this kind of weird hold on the people immediately associated with it, but not necessarily the people who are outside of the immediate tradition. Again, the rationale for keeping these idols was that they brought luck and prosperity to the farm. But apparently they couldn't help in certain matters, for instance, illness. This was before the time of village doctors, so what you would normally do is call upon the most educated man in the village, namely the priest, who would usually know a little bit about everything. But they didn't want the priest to see the idol, as he might accuse them of paganism. You know, this was not a sanctioned practice by any means, even though they didn't necessarily consider it to be paganism. Either way, the farmers couldn't themselves move the object into the barn or the shed because it might take offense to being treated this way. So what they would do is that they would get somebody else from the outside, like a farmhand from another part of the village, who didn't have that connection to the household deity, and make them move it instead. So there are a few of these, and for the most part we're talking about the 17, 18, uh, even 1900s in some cases, but uh, most of our sources talk about this retrospectively as something, something that used to be done but is gone now. But yeah, if I may return to the subject at hand, uh, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about uh, the tradition surrounding the gundfly and also the so-called flyman, the flugumadr who occurs very occasionally in the Icelandic sagas. But before you do that, I should probably just mention to the listeners here that when we're talking about sources for uh, Sami indigenous religion and Old Norse pre-Christian religion, uh, we're not talking about sources that are contemporary with each other. Because with the Sami, we're usually talking about uh, things that were written down in the early modern period. And of course, with the Old Norse sources, we're usually talking about... Uh, medieval texts. So these corpuses are centuries apart chronologically, but they sort of exemplify uh, the sort of retrospective method that is uh, integral to Eldar's work. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the Sami sources and the Old Norse sources are problematic in different ways, because the, the Old Norse sources, um, as far as, uh, as um, pre-Christian topics, uh, are problematic because they are two or three centuries younger than than the the conversion, but but they're at least written from people inside the culture, uh, whereas the Sami sources are contemporary but written by people outside of the uh, the culture. Uh, they were written by Norwegian and Swedish missionaries who studied the religion because they wanted to uh, well to destroy it, to, to wanted to convert the Sami. So they they were certainly not insiders. Um, but yeah, the, the fly man. Yeah, um, I got interested in that. That was actually the, uh, the why I I got into the the Gander question and and uh, did my my PhD on, on that topic because in in uh, northern Norway in uh, folklore until the mid twentieth century there was um, this very common motif that of of this big fly that would uh, would um, be sent by somebody who wanted to to uh, to hurt you. Um, so uh, 
then in, in the Old Norse, Old Norse sources, there's, um, and, and also in Icelandic, modern Icelandic sources, very similar to the, the Northern Norwegian idea about this, these um, um, flies, uh, big insects uh, sent forth. But in the Old Norse sources, there's uh, this idea about the, the fly man, Flugu Madr, uh, who would be an assassin. Um, so, um, for example, if I wanted to, uh, well, wanted to kill you, I, instead of doing it myself, I could, like people have done it all, uh, all times, to, uh, through the ages, to, to hire an assassin to, to not have to do the dirty work myself. So the man that I sent you to, to uh, try to kill you would be a fly man. Um, and this has been explained uh, as referring to fly fishing. So um, the fly man would be the bait that would try to trick you or something. But there's two fundamental problems to that uh, explanation. Firstly, fly fishing wasn't, at least didn't come to the to the Nordic countries until the 19th centuries by by English noblemen, English lords, coming to to um, well, well, sport fishers, uh, fishermen uh, during the 19th century. So there was no fly fishing uh, in the Middle Ages, um, and um, and also. It doesn't make sense because it's not the fly man. The fly man is not a bait. Uh, it, it's not. Um, it, it doesn't work that way at all. Uh, so so and, and the bait doesn't try to kill well to to stab the fish or, or something. It's just um, um, yeah. It, it's a comparison that that doesn't doesn't really make sense. So what I suggest is that um, it's these ideas about uh, about spirits and and small animals uh, that can um, in which the spirits can uh, yeah can be shape of, of the spirit. Um, so I suggest that um, the flyman, the assassin, Symbolically swallows the fly, uh, a fly from the um, the man who hires him, and in that way um, is uh, well comes under the uh, the the influence of the man who hires him, and there's um, many. Uh, pieces of information that point in that direction. For example, in during Seder, when the the Seder woman uh, receives the information, she yawns. In many cases, she yawns, uh, and also there's um, when you dream about if somebody wants to kill you, and you dream uh, during the night of wolves or something um, coming to your place or approaching um, your place. Um, or when you, uh, during the day, 
if you get sleepy and start yawning, you are under the influence of these these wolves. Uh, this, apparently, the, the the personal spirits of the people approaching, the, the warriors approaching. And uh, and it's this thing about spirits uh, being something that you breathe. Breathe. So even in English, uh, from Latin to uh, spirit uh, um, comes from um, it, uh, well, expire, for example. So so. Um, Spirit and expire. So breathing and spirit is, is um, well come come from the same same idea. So um, well, um, when all the pieces are put together, it seems that um, you can come under the under the influence from another person by swallowing the fly that represent represents the spirit of, of that uh, that person. So the assassin becomes a tool of the man who hires him. And thus, um, yeah, so, so, so in that case, that sense, he's, uh, he's a fly man. Yeah, so just to recap, we're talking about um, a metaphor or an, a fixed expression in the Old Norse language that derives from notions of sorcery or possession, where someone has their own will kind of eclipsed by the will of the sorcerer like a scandinavian zombie basically in the in the kind of voodoo sense and and maybe uh we should uh mention again this this what, what you uh, remembered from your childhood about um sneezing understood as as uh somebody thinking of you or somebody approaching um so it's the this uh the, the it seems that the flyman metaphor makes use of this very fundamental idea about how about the human and and, and um, our souls and, and spirits that every person has this this um, personal spirit slightly ahead of us um, and and this can influence other people on a distance in the shape of a wolf or uh, some insect or oh, yeah all kinds of, of shapes yeah so 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 you start yawning and you get powerless you lose your your will to defend yourself i think that gander uh, the more that you really think about it the stranger it gets um the many overlapping images that connect to it uh would have made great material for a folk horror movie or something like that <laughs> because you have these many strange connections here. You have uh, Gander as the spirit envoy or magic missile, or also the spirit or breath of the magician or ogress, potentially a thread or yarn, I suppose. And and then, of course, there's the uh, magician's penis motif, which is a whole other can of worms that we can open if you like. Um, yeah, maybe we should talk a little bit about the bodily connotations of all of this, maybe uh, starting with breath and and spirit, perhaps. Yeah. Um, modern days, we tend to think about um, a spirit as something completely immaterial, but that uh, well, completely abstract with no physical form whatsoever. But it seems that in ancient times and uh, up until in, in the popular traditions up until very recently, um, a spirit was um, what well, would take the shape of something. Um, uh, like an animal um, or whatever, but it could also be just um, 
conspicuous wind of, of uh, different kinds. So a whirlwind um, could steal, try to steal your grain or your hay or, or uh, whatever. And you could throw uh, um, a knife into it, the, into the whirlwind and the, the sorcerer would die at home. Because if, yeah, <laughs> then the knife hitting the whirlwind would also hit the, the sorcerer at home. So that's a very, very common motive uh, in, in, um, in the folklores, uh, popular traditions throughout Northern Europe. Um, so, and, and wind, uh, it seems to be um, a global idea, actually, uh, then not um, borrowed from people to people, but um, in, invented in, uh, independently. It seems that the, the idea of um, the spirit or soul derives from the breath. So you find in, in languages throughout the world, the same word for a breath um, and for a spirit and for a wind, which uh, of course the, the, the underlying, uh, well, physical fact is that we, we breathe as long as we live and when we die, we breathe one last time and, and that breath uh, goes out into, into the atmosphere. So, um any conspicuous wind can then be understood as as uh, um, some well a soul some will present uh, somebody uh, yeah so so um and also this very common um, legend which was first attested in the um the seventh century um and uh, among the franks in in present day france uh, the Guntram legend, where uh, a person was uh, sleeping and then a small animal would leave, uh, would, would crawl out the mouth of, of the person and then uh, just wander around crossing a creek or something and find, um, uh, find a, well, going into a skull or um, uh, a hillock or, or, or something and then return to the sleeping person with, who would wake up and tell about this strange dream that he had where he went into a house and found this treasure and they would go to this um, place and find the, the treasure. So, so it seems that um, it's the idea of, of the, well, the small animals is because um that's the physical shape that can can go through respiratory passages well, that's another thing i learned from you this that the kind of uh, appearance of the spirit as an animal always takes these weird eldritch forms coming in and out of the throat or nostrils like a like a weasel which of course uh, is long and narrow or a, or a snake or an insect like a fly uh, the fly motif we should definitely talk about um I just find it quite fascinating, this notion that uh, of the spirit having a concrete manifest presence in the world, that it has the power to actually influence the environment. Um, and as you say, this is a frequent folklore motif, I'm sure, all over the world, but you see it so much in Scandinavia. Like, I've been re-immersing myself in the Scandinavian grimoires, the so-called black books lately, and uh, among the more peasant-oriented spells, you often find these weird... Uh, spells and cures for what they call avund, so 
envy, basically, uh, where you have this idea that passionate, intense emotions or thoughts about somebody or something right. can actually cause physical harm to the object of one's thoughts or even desires, um, cause heart attacks and so, uh, and so on. Yeah. Uh, in this case, specifically offering protection against other farmers being envious of your cattle. I also specifically remember a class that you were teaching where you asked the students whether any of us had grown up in a tradition about uh, premonitions. Uh, and I remember that you asked about omens attached to sneezing and itchy noses and such specifically. Uh, and it was the weirdest thing because I'd, I strongly remember hearing this all the time growing up from my grandmother and but also others that sneezing indicated indicated visitors in the near future. It was just some fanciful thing that like parents up into the 90s, maybe still, just tell their kids. It's funny because it's one of those things that you're just told as a child and you don't think any more of it. You certainly don't <laughs> expect this to be a conceptual layover, just frozen in the language uh, and in just kind of popular perception that harkens back to a pre-Christian conception of the soul, basically. Yeah, it's really, uh, really fascinating how it, it still uh, still exists. And, and uh, um, when I grew up, my parents uh, are from uh, Trøndelag, central Norway and, and northern Norway. And, and we had, I remember very well this, um, that you could hear somebody um, coming to your house uh, and you heard them uh, go up the steps, uh, open the door, Hang, uh, hang the jacket um, uh, on the wall and, and so on. But then you, when you looked in the hall, nobody was there. But then 10 minutes later, you heard exactly the same. And then uh, the, the person uh, really arrived. So, um, so it's connected to this, this idea that uh, we have um, um, some kind of personal spirit following us. Um, invisible and next to us all the time but slightly ahead of us so so those um yeah it can be this being can be called fylgja uh, in all norse or hugr hug um and water and and also this is in seder for example the most famous um description of seder in the in eric sagarada the divination in in greenland there's um, this song uh, that needs to be, be sung to uh, to uh, to summon the spirits uh, that will tell uh, or reveal the future. Uh, it, the song is called Vard um, Lokkur. So and, and Lokkur is is, the, is to um, well to uh, to allure, and Vard is is this first part of the word Vardöger, which is the most co no common Norwegian term for, for what you described and, and, and for what I described, this, this um, uh, premonition, this, uh, yeah, the, the presence or whatever it is from a person arriving or, or thinking about you on a, on a distance. So it's, um, yeah, Old Norse Vardr, um, both the uh, the uh, the spirits that are attracted for for uh, seder and and um, uh, term used for for these uh, personal spirits following every every person. That's one of the most fascinating aspects of this, I think. That on the one hand, you have this specialized magical art 
possibly only accessible to the initiated, but it, it ties in with very widely held perceptions about how the world functioned that was sort of ever-present in Norse ontology. Um, but to get back to the Norse-Sami connection that we started off with, I think that many people may think of Seder as a sort of Norse shamanism. Like, do you have any thoughts about this term at all? Well, um, yeah. Well, um, many um, historians of religion avoid the term shamanism altogether because it's used about everything, and and especially about uh, in in um, New Age um, milieus. So, um, so uh, as a result of that, it's it's very uns well, it can be very unspecific. But then, on the other hand, if you stick to a more essential meaning of shamanism it i would say it's accurate to or informative to say that yeah it's say there is is uh, is a kind of norse uh, shamanism because it it's very uh, well it overlaps very much with with uh, that part of at least sami religion yeah those are all fair points i think and with some reservations i think that i generally agree at least when we um stick to a more like uh, a limited sense of uh, of shamanism because yeah as you say it's it's used so widely about all sorts of experiences that um it's uh, it's difficult to pinpoint where the shamanism begins and where it ends and whatnot and it's just not usually defined but you know as a specific set of ecstatic experiences maybe well i don't know i'm not a shamanism expert so we should continue talking about the bodily connotations of Gander and Seder, and maybe now specifically about the more kinky, weird, sexual taboo stuff that Seder is so famous for, but which I think that you could probably shed more light on than anybody else, really. And probably the most obvious place to start is uh, with gender, um, specifically who were the Seder practitioners. Uh, mostly women, but it's um, said that uh, Odin did it too. And uh, and well, which uh, fits with with uh, Odin's character because he uh, um, he could break the rules, and there's uh, always, in, I guess, in all cultures, there's there's power in the breaking of rules. So so he did that. Um, but according, according to the sources, mostly women um, did it, and if men did it, that was. Um, something that uh, well, it was it was disgraceful. So um, yeah, and and I mentioned this the the, the uh, how the, the sources avoid telling us what exactly was done during Seder, and and I believe that's connected to this. Um, well, there's this spinning theory, okay, uh, spinning was women's work, so that would fit, but it wouldn't be um, uh, enough uh, of a taboo topic to, to censor it, I think. So, but then if we uh, turn to the, um, the, these emissaries that were sent forth uh, during say that there's, there's something. Um, and the clearest example may be, um, well, um, there's Gandr, um, which clearly is um, 
one term for the the spiritual emissary uh, sent forth during during Seder. And uh, the, the derivation of gandur, gondul, uh, could in Old Norse mean a penis. And in modern Icelandic, uh, gandur is uh, the most common term for, um, for a penis. So that's the, the word you will encounter in pornographic stories in, in Icelandic. So, um, and in, uh, in the Sami sources, there's a word noitya and dirra. Noitya is, is noitya shaman and dirra is, is a penis. And it's, um, it's a bit uh, peculiar to, to follow the, uh, uh, the research history, um, among other things. Uh, one of the foremost specialists on Sami languages, I think it was during the 1950s, wrote in, in an article that this, this dirra word was unknown. Uh, in the sources, but clearly it's not. It's it's in all the dictionaries. Uh, just that um, the the meaning of it was too interesting. So and there's also in the in the Sami um, sources uh, when when the Noides uh, when they fight each other in in a trance, the, the body is lying uh, immobile, but then they're fighting in in the shape of reindeer bulls and and um, um, well, the fight, the kind of fight that you'll see during the, the mating seasons. So it's clearly a, a sexual element to it and, and uh, something related to, um, well, actually in, in present day English, um, the use of the, the F word when somebody tricked you or, or uh, whatever, you can use the, the F word about that. So, um, Clearly, in, 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 in Old Norse and, and, uh, and Sami tradition as well, it seems, uh, we find this as um, an aspect of, of this huge uh, complex of ergi um, and, and uh, phallic aggression. Uh, the idea was that um, there was a symbolic uh, equation between um, penetrating in bed and and on the, the battlefield, so that um, well, sexual aggression was was the same as aggression with with um, with weapons. Of course, this has almost become somewhat of a pet subject on the podcast, simply because it's so strange and interesting. But we should probably mention that phallic aggression is a term that is uh, coined by Preben Mölngracht Sørensen, a Danish scholar, in his uh, phenomenal book Norunt Need, or uh, The Unmanly Man, in its English translation, which is probably the foremost book on sexual defamation and gender dynamics in the sagas. Yeah. It's quite uh, old, but I, I think it still holds its own. So Norse society had this uh, rather narrow idea about what was considered to be the sort of uh, characteristic properties of male and female, which made masculinity a sort of running marathon of, of challenges because the path of what Norse society considered manly was so narrow and the stakes were tremendously high. Being a man in this society must have been tremendously difficult. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so kind of simplified, you have this idea that men ought to be hard and sharp and firm, while the desired qualities in women are softness and moistness and warmness and whatnot. So a very biological, uh, sexual mode of understanding, but not without interesting exceptions. So the culture was extremely sensitive about sexual transgression and uh, 
particularly failures of masculinity. But oddly enough, these transgressions brought this strange sort of um, power into the world. Uh, an interesting contrast is that uh, with the Jotnar, which are uh, the enemies of the gods, uh, kind of simplified, often called giants, though they are not really giants. Um, I think that's a really idiotic term. Um, they live in this sort of inversion of the human and divine world where um, effeminate passivity can somehow be this male trait, while the women, the ogresses, do much of the dirty work. Also with uh, trolls, uh, there's this ambiguity that separates them from humans. Trolls are a kind of inhuman humanoids. They are, by definition, ambiguous and clandestine. So you have this whole connotation of trolls and sorcery in Scandinavia as well. Now, in terms of male sorcerers and the taboo against them, I wanted at some point to write an academic article about exactly that, because you have these odd references to them in definite pagan texts, including runic inscriptions, for example, which seems to indicate that they were seen as these dangerous and disruptive, almost black magicians. In some sources, Harald Fairhair, the first unifying king of Norway, is even described as sort of a warlock hater which has led some people to think that he might have been negatively inclined towards paganism generally, but that doesn't seem correct since most certainly he was a pagan. Uh, and nor does it really go against what seems to be the general mainstream pagan consensus towards male sated uh, practitioners either. So it's just that this very restrictive notion of masculinity, like many other things in this uh, wonderfully strange Norse world, uh, sort of paves way to new interpretations and visions and possibilities, as if to say, um, well, no decent man should do these things, but as it happens, these people and these kind of dehumanized trollish characters do actually exist. They must exist, just because of the way that the, the world is tied together. It's just that they're bad news, they're dangerous to keep around. So it's kind of weirdly anti-dogmatic and unpuritanical, while also in an oddly intolerant yeah. way. Yeah, and that's, um, to me, that seems, the idea seems to be that uh, um, it's more like it's a dangerous weapon. So, and it can be used for bad things. So, so um, even if maybe in some situations you would want to use it in general, um, you, you, you don't like it. So, yeah, yeah. So you don't like the people who do it because it's uh, because it's a disgrace in, in in some some way. So this is a bit apropos, maybe, but uh, just makes me think of that Thotter, that short saga snippet of the um, the guy who dons the fake beard and goes to Håkon Jarl's uh, feast to to curse. Thorleif Thotter Jarl's skulls. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, in that case, in that case, it's. Um, um, I don't remember if it's. Um, is the word sailor used uh, mentioned in that in that case? No, not at all. Uh -huh. no, but it ties in with uh, the general sexually humiliating sorcery. It's thing. a need. Like uh, it connects a lot of the things we're talking about here. Yeah, need is is um, trying to take the honor away from from somebody. So so you like you make a poem comparing a man with a mare or a troll or something and and it will um work like acid acid and 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 uh yeah so the, the his reputation yeah his reputation just completely dissolves 
but a need is just defamation. But in this case, it works as a spell that actually uh, physically impacts its target. Exactly, exactly. So he's, this guy is attacked by, by need, and, and the need attacks his backside. Uh, so he, he um, yeah, he start, um, starts to fidget, and, and so he can't, can't sit still, and, and it's clear, and it has to be, uh, the, it's, it's a handkerchief with three knots on it, it's a coarse handkerchief with three knots on it, uh, that he has pulled back and forth between his buttocks. So it's it's yeah, uh, very clear that it, it's uh, this uh, backside itch, which uh, indicates in that culture, this really homophobic culture, that that he was um, well, <laughs> it was horny in the wrong way, to to put it that way. <laughs> yeah, the uh, so. loin itch uh, is a specific idiomatic term in Norse language. Exactly used about um female horniness. Yeah. It's an interesting nuance here that the uh, adjective argr in the masculine uh, means something completely different from its feminine declension org. Because with with argr it means uh, you know uh, it implies being the passive receiver of um, of of the homosexual act, you yeah. might say. But on kind of a wider semantic scale, it also means kind of. Uh, somebody who is generally untrustworthy, kind of two-faced, uh, cowardly, and so on, uh, it only kind of makes sense within the specific mindset of that society, where your gender identity yeah. was uh, yeah. so intrinsically connected uh, to your social identity and role in the honor economy and so on. But it doesn't mean quite the same thing when it's used about women, you know? Uh, you could say that in both cases, it sort of means pervert, basically. But with women, it doesn't mean lesbian. It it doesn't have quite the same um, connotation of uh, fearing confrontation and, and being kind of cowardly as it does with, uh, with the masculine argr. Um, uh, with women, it means nymphomania. Well, yeah, I, I agree that this, uh, this adjective... Yeah, exactly. This argr, ragr, there's two versions of the, of the adjective. Well, when it refers to women, it's... Uh, they're, they're, um wanting to go to bed with just any man even the the the, the killer of her brother or uh, or or uh, with her father or whoever uh, so just any man so but when referring to to men it's uh, it's means willing to have the female role in in sexual intercourse so it's i think it's unique that the same adjective has different meanings in 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 the masculine and the feminine, uh, and I yeah, I've been considering writing an article about that, but it's too much that I want to write, so I think it will never happen. But I think the explanation is that in both cases, it's the um, unnatural desire to be penetrated. Yeah, to to put it bluntly. Yeah. Um, as a student, I. One of the funnier parts of the curriculum was reading these uh, insane insults that people were flinging at each other in the sagas. Like, um, like uh, you're the troll's bitch, you are. I know you get buggered by the barrel man every ninth night. Like these yeah. completely ridiculous accusations that nobody must have taken literally, word by word. But the implication, the symbolism is deemed so severe and the accusation so stigmatizing that the cultural norms leave you with no way to defend yourself but to physically retaliate against the person who says it. It's like being shot with a beam of pure shame. Uh, yeah, I think that's the most interesting part. That if uh, somebody 
said something like that to you, uh, you would have the right to kill that person on the spot. You'd ha you would have the right to do that and you would not be punished for it. So it was that serious. Well, today we, our reaction would, would be just something like, hey, w w what's your problem? Maybe you should go see a, a shrink. <laughs> no, yeah, it's uh, it's completely absurd. And, uh, yeah. and this is why it can be difficult for those of us who have not grown up in an honor-shame society in that way. And very few of us have, uh, who would be listening to this podcast anyway. Um, yeah, because we don't think like these people did in these sort of situations at all. Like I've spoken to people, I've had students in the past who were from, say, Afghanistan, who probably have an easier time yeah, imagining living in that sort of harsh yeah. reality than, well, than, than you and I do, basically. In one way, it goes to show just how different contemporary society is from it. And I think it was Neil Price, maybe, who said that uh, with Norse culture, we're basically talking about possibly the most homophobic culture that has ever existed on Earth. <laughs> yeah, that's possible, yeah. So incidentally, in this heritage of ours, first of all, I don't think that romanticization is necessary to enjoy or respect it for what it is. But it's interesting to see what sort of culture some people try to romanticize or try to explain or rationalize or fit into uh, a modern uh, ethical paradigm, which I don't think is necessary, strictly speaking, and I actually think it does more harm than good. To me personally, I think it also deserves to be reflected upon in my kind of Scandi futuristic project, well, where I try to demonstrate that the past is here right now and uh, that we also influence the past and are actually engaged in a sort of uh, past production right now. Well, but one interesting thing about uh, aspect about say that uh, if we can return to that is is okay the the um, this magical projectile or, or spirit that you send forth uh, okay can can could be understood as as uh, as a penis okay so which makes sense in light of this this uh, phallic aggression and so on but then if if it was women who did it, then it's uh, more complicated. So then we have to, um, yeah, other turn to other aspects of other sides of Old Norse culture. Uh, something that we see in in maybe um, especially in the sagas of Icelanders and this famous episode in in Laxdöla saga where where Gudrun um, goads. Um, her husband bully into killing Kjartan. And it's um, this, this famous exchange of, of um, uh, well, lines uh, when he returns and tells her that, that now, now it's, it's done. And he compares his killing of Kjartan with, with the weapons um, with her uh, textile work at the same time. So, so it seems that, um, and also goading is a very central aspect of, of uh, the, the revenge uh, culture, blood feud uh, culture. So it, you may see that, say that it, it, it's women who pull the strings when, when women fight. So, so that could make sense to it, that even if it's women, um, who do say that it's yeah they can function w within uh, within that um, 
phallic aggression logic. It's extremely fascinating that there was this flexibility with the female sphere, at least symbolically. And as we have seen, the, the difference between symbolic and the concrete didn't necessarily always matter to these people. Uh, but yeah, the, the textile work is a complement to the expectation that men perform violence on behalf of their family is very interesting. And again, with Neil Price, who suggests that the women engaged in a sort of invisible, metaphysical, magical sort of combat. And then, of course, there's this thing, which might be more of a literary trope, but it's still interesting in this context, and that is... Um, that exchange of textiles is often a cue that someone in the saga is about to die. Yeah. And it's even used, uh, one one form of, of sailor is to make a person invulnerable. Um, and again, it's never said how uh, this is done in sailor, but we have a couple of passages where the same is achieved by by uh, either hanks of yarn under the clothes of the, of the, of the man to be protect, protected or or its magical prote uh, uh, properties um, uh, put into uh, uh, um, a shirt uh, while it's it's made. So so apparently the the threads and the the the, the fabric of, of the shirt has has uh, got those properties during some magical procedure, which again could make sense. In, 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 in say there was. Um, was about spinning essentially great so i think that we've um, we've touched upon all the important bits is there anything else that you think that we should address eldar or or is there anything else you want to say well maybe the uh, uh we should say some a bit more about the the, um, the basis for this spinning theory and uh, maybe i think what has been um what has worked functioned as, as the strongest argument is the um, these metal staffs found in, in uh, women's Viking Age graves. Um, Neil Price suggested in his dissertation that they were sailor staffs because they, they resembled the, the description of the sailor staff in Hadig Saga. Um, and then I uh, discovered that the shape and size of those metal staffs were very similar striking is similar to distaffs um, used for for spinning um, before the the spinning wheel um, that then people would spin with um, spindles um, but they would also use a distaff uh, to which the, the spinning material was attached and, and uh, people would pull the spinning material from from the distaff um, and it would be uh, hold um, well, um, by by the belt or, or stuck between the legs uh, or the person or, or something like that. So um, yeah, so the shape of those um, the shape of the, those metal staffs from the Viking Age uh, women's graves were strikingly uh, was strikingly similar to uh, to the distaffs, um, but distaffs are never made of metal. The, the actual distaffs uh, and metal back then in the Viking Age was much more costly than later. So so why would people at that time prefer metal if they didn't do that later? Uh, so I think this is, uh, the answer is that these were ritual distaffs used in, in Seder. So... Um, yeah, I agree. And you know, uh, this yeah. is a very textile heavy home, and though I don't... Uh, personally spin 
Uh, I can't think of any practical or economic reason why a distaff should be made out of iron and fitted with bronze ornaments and such. If anything, I'd probably expect that the weight would make it more awkward to work with as opposed to a light, dainty, regular wooden one. But I don't really know, it's just my guess. But if we are correct to assume that the clientele of these ritual specialists would have been the elites, then we could probably expect a similar sort of patronage to what we see with other members of the Iron Age courts, where these princes would commission charismatic objects for distribution within their network of associates, basically as a means of flexing their power. So I kind of want to say that these Sather staffs are kind of like uh, the textile equivalent of a gold-plated AK-47. But I'm going to resist making that right. comparison because I think... You could say the same thing about so many different objects that are in circulation at the time that, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, yeah. we, we would be here until tomorrow if we're going to start playing that game. So instead, I'm going to thank you, Eldar, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Eric. No, the pleasure is all mine. I would love to have you back on sometime soon, and maybe we could talk about Viking ships or your uh, fascinating work on Loki. Loki and the Aslad, that's... Um, that's uh... One of my, my favorites. Yeah, I think that that's probably everybody's favorite topic. It's <laughs> certainly one of mine. I know a lot of your stuff is available online on www.eldar.net. Um... Yep, I think virtually all my articles are posted there. Excellent. Make sure to check out Eldar's homepage in the show notes below. What's the ugliest part of your body? Some say it's your nose. Some say it's your toes. But I think it's your mind. It should be said that there is beauty and wonder even in the ugly. And what a wondrous, ugly and beautiful thing it was, the Norse mind. And I think that you'll agree with me after listening to this episode. And thank you for doing that, by the way. I have said more than I need to say already, but I think... The episode isn't complete until I plug the Brute Norse Patreon. I won't try to bribe you with promises of the grand things that await you on the other side. You either sign up for it or you don't, but if you like my podcast and would like the opportunity to communicate with me or the rest of the invisible choir that makes up the small but powerful cable that is the Brute Norse community, maybe even influence some of the direction of my content. Then, Patreon is arguably the gateway that might lead you to the Brute Norse Discord channel, which is arguably better than any trinkets that I might be able to throw your way. Regardless, patronage, even at the lowest tier, gives you a 20% discount in the Brute Norse Teespring store. That saves you a buck if you're already in the market for a t-shirt or two. Plus, your patronage not only helps to pay my student loans, it also serves to subsidize the wider Scandifuturist project. And I do have some tricks up my sleeve for 2021, if I can only get around to complete them. With all of that being said, my name is Erik Stolsen, and you've been listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, where we've been walking backwards into the future.